Hello everybody. It is that time of the week again. It's Ask Abhijit time. So welcome to episode 53 of Ask Abhijit. Uh, to all the returning viewers, it's great to see you all. Thank you for returning. To the new viewers, welcome to the Ask Abhijit show. So let's see who all we have with us. Let us see. I can see Ashi, Aishwarya, Aditya, Divya, Raj, lover of military and capitalism, Bhai, Chiching, Om, Aaron, Joydeep, Vineet, Banu Prakash, Kalyan, Ricky, Aniruddh, Kamat, Samarth, Aditya, Digital Monk, Harsha Jain, Sukrut, Harshit, 2.0, S2 Vlogs, Nandan, Harsh, Varma, Sarvesh Raj, Varad Dongre, Shashi, Satyam Gupta, Chandraban Maurya, Yogendra, Cosmo, Satvik, Swastika, Kuvar, Saiba, Anthony Mack, Jatin, Debos Mandas Gupta, Dibya Jyoti, Shashank, Rahul, Mr. Chakravarti, Super Rex, Virar, and so many more people. I am unable to greet you all, but thank you for being here. It's great to be back with you all. So what shall we discuss today? Okay, before we get into the discussions, before we get into the questions, a uh, couple of things. Uh, I have started a Discord server. Many of you have been asking for a few months, for several months, for me to start a, a Discord server. So I have started a Discord server. The invite link is pinned on top of the chat. Please join. It's a place where you can all get together and discuss various matters or the kind of things that we discuss on this channel. So you can all get together, form a community, share information, knowledge, views, news, and all that. Have discussions, have debates, and, uh, you know, learn new things. So that's the Discord server. I hope that you all join. Uh, secondly, a few people, uh, not few people, many people have been asking me about the, about the super chats. Why don't I have super chats on this channel? I think I, I had uh, spoken about this a few months ago, but I think lots of new people have joined, so they, they're not aware of it. So I had uh, kept uh, Super Chats on in the very beginning of, of the Ask Abhijit show, maybe the first few episodes. But then I decided to switch them off because it was creating this divide between the people who who could pay and who, who could not pay. I mean, most of the viewers on this channel are students, they're teenagers, they're youngsters. And I think it's just inappropriate for me to answer questions in exchange for money. Uh, I don't care what other channels are doing. I think it's just wrong. I don't want to do it. I'm not doing this for money. I'm just doing this to to have a conversation with you all and, and to, you know, discuss things. So that is why I'm doing it. I'm not doing this thing to earn money from answering questions. That's That's just obscene in my opinion. So that's the reason why I have switched off the super chats. No super chats on this channel. If, especially when I'm taking questions. Uh, in case some of you want to contribute, you can uh, contribute in some way. You can become members. So uh, thank you to all of you who have uh, joined as members. Welcome to the new members. Thank you very much. And uh, there are some other options if you want to contribute, right? So you can use that. But there will be no super chats on the channel. Everybody will be treated equally. Knowledge must always be free. There should be no restrictions. Uh, so yeah. So thank you to all the new members. Thank you to all those who, of you who have contributed to the channel. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, and one more thing people have been asking me is what happened to the short clips. So uh, in the last three, four months, I have uploaded, I think, about 500 short clips of individual answers on this channel. 
So that phase is done now. I am not going to upload any more short clips. All the answers that I have uh, given on this channel, hundreds of answers, they're all available. You can search. If you have any specific question you're looking for, you can just go use the search functionality and you will be able to find the episode in which I have answered the question. The timestamps are all there mostly. So you can uh, find those answers. I still have enough material to upload another thousand short clips, but I will not be doing that anymore. Now the focus of this channel is going to change. I'm going to create long form content, documentary style content coming very soon. So there will be no more short clips coming up on this channel. Right. I think that that takes care of those questions. Now let us see what questions you have. What would you like me to talk about? Let's see what questions you all are asking. Uh, okay, let's take some questions. There are lots already. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, Kostub asks, is it true or myth that the grandfather of Jawaharlal Nehru, the real name was Gyasuddin Ghazi, and he was a soldier in the in the army of Bahadur Shah Zafar. So that's the that's the story one hears all the time. But is it documented? Is there any uh, documentary evidence for this? We don't know. This is a this is a story, a rumor. I don't know what it is, but it it simply refuses to go away. So maybe there could be some truth to it. But has it been proven? Does the evidence exist? Do the records exist of such a person having served under the Mughal Empire as whatever, as a soldier or the Kotwal of Delhi or whatever they say? I don't know. I haven't investigated this. But yes, I've heard the story. I've heard the claims, the, these very strong claims that this is the story. But, you know, I haven't investigated it myself. And I am not sure if anybody has produced uh, any actual documentation or actual records from that time that uh, prove this conclusively. So I, I personally don't know for sure. But yes, I've heard, certainly heard of this, this story. Okay, let's take some more questions. Okay. It was chaos on the first day. I'm I think you're talking about the first episode of Ask Abhijit. You know, when you start something new, when you start a new show, a new program, you're doing it on a trial and error basis. You don't know how it's going to go unless until you actually do it. So yeah, it took me two, three episodes to realize what is working, what's not working, what I want, what I don't want. So yeah, then I started figuring out how things go and things were much smoother later on. Uh, initially, I was taking everything from the chats. Initially, the super chats were turned on. So I think that was not a good uh, choice. So then I switched the chats off, super chats off. And then for a very long time, I was taking questions from the comments, you know, selected questions from the comments. So that uh, that basically uh, helped me, uh, allowed me to answer very specific questions, not random questions that come from the chats, but that was less interactive. It was certainly, I was asking, I was answering all the questions you all were asking, but it was not that interactive. It was all questions that I picked up because I found them interesting and I was answering them live. Now what I'm doing is I'm doing it fully interactive, uh, two sessions per week. One is all from the chat. So I'm answering in real time, whatever you are asking in real time from the chats. And the other session is live video chat, which is even more interactive. So now I think uh, after I have answered like, maybe more than a thousand questions already. I want to make it a little more interactive so that I get to know all of you and we, we have an actual conversation, you know. 
so it it keeps evolving you have to keep evolving adapting you do things initially on a trial and error basis but you have to learn quickly and you have to adapt so i think that's how this channel has evolved in the last 4 4 plus months since i started the ask abhijit show all right let's take some more questions dhruv mishra says what is the way to become a leader in the country of the country in this kind of electoral system even though one has capabilities you know to become a leader in this country you need to be politically adept you need to know how to navigate the dirty murky world of politics it's not about how great you are how capable you are how patriotic you are it's about learning to deal and to navigate the political system because that's the only way you are going to succeed in the political system if you get elected and to get elected you need to be a member of a political party and you need to you know make the right moves because you will never get you don't stand any chance of getting elected as an independent candidate because all the political parties their candidates have almost unlimited financial support from the political parties i mean on every election every candidate even at the lowest levels mla levels they spend crores of rupees on various various promotional activities you know on the election campaign uh, an um, a non political party person doesn't stand a chance doesn't have any kind of uh, doesn't have anything close to that sort of money so you need to become a par- member of a political party you need to make the right moves and you need to be able to muster uh, support on the ground and so on and so forth that's it's a long involved process you will find that typically when somebody gets elected to the highest position in the country highest positions in the country whether it's chief minister or prime minister they're usually past 50 almost past 60 70 sometimes because it takes a long time in the system to rise to that level you have to to fight your way all the way up you know from the very bottom so it's it's uh, it's quite hard i mean you know the thing is that to a certain extent it is important that somebody who aspires to leadership should demonstrate the ability to persevere over a long period of time and to to fight off all kinds of challenges and difficulties so it is actually it does make sense for somebody to demonstrate the ability the capability the perseverance the willingness the discipline the will power to uh, focus on the goal for an extended period of time at least 10 years only then i think the, a person should be allowed to rise to the highest positions of power in the country the leadership positions right so that is one thing that is actually desirable but on the other hand there is so much politics i mean politics is dirty and murky 95 98% of politicians don't really care about the country they are all concerned about their own personal interests that's something you see across the world throughout the world not only in india So yeah you have to learn to navigate all that if you want to rise to the top of the country and become a leader either as a chief minister or a prime minister someday or whatever you know so yeah it's a long learning process it's a long involved drawn out process you have to invest your entire life into it if you want to make a difference right let's see some more questions This is an interesting question by Varad Dongre why did the senate of Carthage betray Hannibal during the Punic wars by cutting off supplies it's a very interesting question so the Punic wars took place i think in the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE it was between the the uh, the kingdom of Carthage in north africa present day algeria morocco that region uh, between the kingdom of Carthage in north africa and the roman empire and carthage was a very powerful very prosperous kingdom empire at the time and there was this uh, 
this long drawn out conflict between the two for supremacy in the Mediterranean region. So Hannibal was the greatest general of Carthage during the first Punic War, I think the first war between these two empires. And before Hannibal, his father Hamilcar Barca was also one of the greatest generals of of the Carthaginian Empire. And he too was betrayed by the Senate. The Senate of Carthage expected Hannibal and before him his father, they expected these great generals to fight on their behalf and to defeat the Romans. But they were unwilling to support them to the fullest extent. They were un- unwilling to give them the supplies, the, uh, the, the arms, ammunition, etc. that they needed. But they expected them to go and fight and win. And that happened with uh, Hannibal's father. That also happened with Hannibal himself. And it eventually led to the defeat of Hannibal in the uh, uh, and the defeat and the death of Hannibal eventually, in the, I think in the era of the First Punic War. Uh, the First Punic War was not a complete disaster for Carthage. It was kind of a stalemate. The Romans did win back some territory from Carthage in the First Punic War eventually. Uh, and later on in the Second Punic War, it was total annihilation for Carthage. So this is what happens when you have short-sighted politicians who are more concerned with their own personal gain and they are not concerned with the long-term security, prosperity and future of the country and its people. So it's a very interesting chapter of history. Uh, the guy who, who, who spent his entire life fighting for his kingdom, for his country, for the people he served, for his nation, he was betrayed by his politicians and it led to the eventual disastrous defeat and complete annihilation of Carthage. So it's an instructive lesson from history. It is because of short-sightedness, selfishness, and pettiness of these politicians that this happened. Okay, let's take more questions. Okay, Chiching Dingle asks, uh, what was happening in Nagaland during the time of the Mauryan Empire? That's a very interesting question. So it's not just about Nagaland. See, we we tend to think of geographical regions in the context of today's political boundaries. So people ask, what was happening in Maharashtra 3000 years ago? Or what was happening in Tamil Nadu 3000 years ago? Or what was happening in Nagaland or Manipur or Tripura 2000 years ago? And so on. In those days, there was no Maharashtra, there was no Tamil Nadu, there was no Nagaland, there was no Tripura, there was no Manipur, there was no Nepal. Right? During the Mauryan Empire, you had a large political entity called the Indian civilization. It was all under one emperor during the Mauryan times. Now, I am not sure if present-day Northeast India was at the time administered by the by the Mauryan Empire. I'm not sh- completely sure that it was. It was certainly very much a part of the Indian subcontinent of, of uh, the overall extended Indian civilization, which extended all the way to the Philippines. Uh, but I am not one hundred. The problem is this: our historians have completely, totally neglected the history and the culture of northeastern India. I mean, I, I am very acutely aware of the fact that the people of northeast India feel neglected. They feel like the government of India treats them like second-class citizens, and there is a great deal of truth to it. Since independence, the northeast of India has been totally neglected. There has been no infrastructure development, no development of any kind. It has been left to its devices and it's be, it, it has undergone a great deal of strife 
and 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 all of that has been artificially engineered and also and so on and there has been absolutely no historical research done in the history of this region you ask any historian this question they will have no answer because they have done no research and if you look at the, uh, this region you have a few universities there in northeast in india and you have departments of history there what are those professors of history doing there they are doing absolutely nothing they are teaching from the textbooks but they are doing no actual original research they are not asking themselves a simple question of what is the history of this place whether it is nagaland whether it is manipur whether it is any other part of india of of northeast in india there is no research being done there and therefore i am unable to answer your question if i was in charge of a history department there i would take certain specific actions to uncover the history over time of let's say nagaland or manipur or tripura or meghalaya or mizoram or whatever right arunachal pradesh and so on it's simply not been done in the past 70 years and therefore i don't know i'm unable to answer this question i mean we don't even have a chronological history of the kings of nagaland what i do know is that we had there was this big uh, empire kingdom of manipur which did administer large areas in this region i think what is now known as nagaland did come under the jurisdiction of the kings of manipur for a very long period of time repeatedly during various kingdoms uh, some of the kings of manipur were very very uh, active very dynamic they forged great uh, territorial uh, jurisdictions some of them even conquered parts of burma some of them even captured rangoon and so on so i think uh, significant portions of nagaland would have been under the jurisdiction of the manipuri kings from time to time but what is the specific history of this region uh, what i do know is that the various so called tribes of nagaland they are linguistically very diverse culturally also very diverse Uh, they all have different languages many of the tribes can't even speak or understand each other's language so there is this uh, new language that has been constructed nagamese you know which serves as a kind of common unifying language for this region but each of these tribes or clans would have their own history which has been erased in the past uh, 100 years or so the local culture has been destroyed and a foreign culture has been transposed on top of it so i don't want to get into that controversy but the thing is that there has been no research done in the history of either nagaland or even manipur or any part of north eastern india and that is a crying shame india's historians need to be ashamed of themselves they need to hang their heads in shame and the people of india need to call these historians out and expose them for their dereliction of their duty so i hope that research is done because clearly all of these different tribes and clans in nagaland and so on have very ancient histories very old histories that go back possibly several thousand years right so this needs to be uh, researched these stories need to be uncovered and publicized and published you know these need to be documented so i hope that happens you know i hope that the local historians the professors of history in the local universities i think somebody needs to give them a kick up their backside and make them do their work which they are paid for so that's what i can answer but thank you it's it's great to hear a question from from nagaland chiching thank you all right let's see some more questions i have answered many of these questions with which i am seeing here already uh 
So in case I am not answering a specific question that you are asking me, go through my channel. I have answered many of the questions. For instance, King Vikramaditya, I have answered this at least a couple of times in the past. Check it out. Okay, Jagmohan Sinha says, there is clear evidence that the Harappan people ate cow meat. That means it is clear that it is totally different from Vedic culture. Okay, Jagmohan, I, uh, so that's what you are stating. There is clear evidence that Harappan people ate cow meat. So what is this clear evidence? Have you provided the clear evidence? Let me tell you. I, I See, I'm not criticizing you. Uh, let me tell you what you mean. I know what you mean. So there has been a, a research paper published in one of, uh, whether it was Nature or somewhere else, in which some researchers analyzed the contents of a, a jar or a pot in which they found a residue that is indicative of uh, animal fat, lipids, and most specifically, uh, I think they identified it as belonging to an animal of the bovine, of one of the bovine species, either a buffalo or a cow. Or it's basically fat from cattle. And on the basis of this, of the analysis of one or two, I think one jar, I think, they have reached the conclusion that the people of the Harappan region ate cow meat. Did the, my question is very simple. Did they find traces of animal protein? Because you know what? Cow fat is also found in ghee, in curd, in milk. These lipids are found in the milk of cows, of buffaloes, of bovine animals, of all cattle. If you boil milk in, uh, in, in any kind of vessel, and if you leave it there, it's going to uh, evaporate over time, it's going to solidify, and the residue which is left behind will have the same characteristics as the fat of the animal. So this does not constitute any kind of clear evidence that the people of Harappa ate cow meat. And even if you find evidence in one jar, in one place, of, of let's say, hypothetically, that uh, there is incontrovertible evidence that there was cow meat or, or cattle meat in one jar, does it indicate that the same thing was, was, was the same uh, practice was prevalent throughout the Sapta Sindhu region, which is bigger than Egypt and Mesopotamia and the Middle East put together? On the basis of even even if you find one incontrovertible uh, data point, can you extrapolate that to cover the entire subcontinent-sized geo geographical region? It is absolute stupidity to do that. I am not saying Jagmohan, you are stupid. I am saying that if if the researchers have made such a claim, they are stupid, and they need to be called out for that. Point number one is, it is evidence of animal fat. It's not evidence of animal meat. Right? And secondly, they found this. They have claimed to find this, to have found this. I think it is in the Saurashtra Kach region in Gujarat, in one place. So if you find something in one place, does it mean it was practiced everywhere throughout the Sapta Sindhu region, throughout the uh, region of the... Uh, Saraswati Sindhu civilization, which extends from northern Maharashtra all the way to southern Afghanistan and from western UP all the way to Balochistan. It makes no sense. So there is no clear evidence that any such thing happened. They found evidence of animal fat in one place, in one jar, in one location. It is not evidence of animal meat. It's just fat. It could come from milk. It could come from something else. We don't know what it indicates. So this is the problem. 
this is the problem that you see throughout these academics they are intellectually dishonest they are purposefully misleading the people they have an agenda a socio political agenda they have a hindu phobic agenda they want to make people in india believe that the that the aryan invasion thing happened that the people of uh, the harappan region were not vedic they were not hindus they followed some pre hindu culture they were cow eaters cow 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 killers and so on and so forth despite all the evidence that is staring us in the face they are cherry picking one or two data points and trying to construct narratives out of that you will see this again and again and again and again and unfortunately science is just hard evidence and this is they are not going to be able to succeed because as we uncover more evidence the patterns become very clear they are already very clear that uh, that the harappan people are the ancestors of all indians today all of us see those thus far we have um, done the genetic analysis of one individual of only one individual in the harappan region we need to start doing that for more ancient harappan remains so that is something that needs to happen only when we examine several dozen ancient remains of the harappan saptasindhu people then we will be able to find uh, to to make better uh, to reach better conclusions but all the data that we have as of today very copious voluminous data from genetics from linguistics from population genetics from genomics linguistics literature archaeology uh, uh what else do we have geology hydrology hydromorphology and so much more all of it points in just one direction that the aryan invasion did happen but the origin of the aryan invasion was india and it went westwards into europe from here and the indo european homeland the homeland of the indo european languages and culture and religion is india that is the evidence that is the pattern that you see throughout all of these pieces of evidence from these different disciplines so this fake narrative they will try and keep on misleading people all these uh, outlets the wire the print the quint the squint whatever else they will keep on publishing reams of misinformation but eventually it will be exposed as all lies okay there have been people publishing books you know very these books have been very successful now let me give you an example tony joseph's book uh, ancient indians or whatever the hell it is called it is absolute garbage but it has so many good reviews on amazon and very good sales so the problem is the education system is is has made the people of india susceptible to this sort of misinformation and misleading so but it it can't go on forever because the evidence is just hard fit facts and hard data and the facts are the facts the truth is the truth the truth is that india is the original homeland of the indo european languages culture people and religion that's all it is mudit says can you please speak about excavation sites in tamil nadu like kiladi yes there have been many uh, there are uh, several archaeological uh, projects going on in places like kiladi adi chellanur adi chan i'm not sure what the name is and in many other places vaigai uh, there's a bunch of archaeological sites that are currently being excavated and we are finding very interesting uh, 
pieces of evidence from there so right now we are in the very early days of excavation and the media again is is trying to portray it in various ways so they're saying there is a new civilization in keeladi there is a new civilization in adichalanur this is a tamil civilization apparently so again they are trying to portray every new archaeological site as a separate civilization the fact is that everything is part of one civilization we are finding the same patterns everywhere right uh and now when they find evidence of the brahmi script they say it is not brahmi it is tamil brahmi and it is separate from regular brahmi and maybe tamil brahmi is the origin of all brahmi brahmi scripts and so on so even when you find this evidence that conclusively links these ancient sites in southern india in tamil nadu to sites in archaeological sites in northern india all the way up to afghanistan with the with the brahmi script they are trying to still portray it as something different so i would say that right now let the excavations happen it needs to continue happening and i hope that they document all the evidence properly i hope they construct museums there in which you can house all these artifacts uh, safely and uh, all the evidence will speak for itself the the fact is that ancient india see today if you look at india india is one vast interconnected geopo- ge- geographical region it's one nation today it's not one civilization anymore it's just a nation state now but from north to south east to west it is just one political entity it is it is a vast region it is all interconnected so the fact the truth is that even 2002 and a half thousand years ago even 5000 years ago it was the same situation north south east west it was all interconnected you will find the same patterns everywhere you will find the same culture everywhere you will find the same cultural artifacts everywhere you will find the same scripts everywhere which we are finding in southern india brahmi but they are portraying it as tamil brahmi apparently so these attempts to to misinform people are going to continue there's a lot of politics involved there are attempts to fabricate evidence i heard there was some christian pastor or somebody who had manufactured fake evidence and he was portraying it as something else and all, all that's what i read in the news and so on so this is going to go on unfortunately history has been very deeply politicized in india it is all part of a big social engineering project to destroy indian culture and transpose foreign culture into the indian society so it's going to keep on going i hope that the government does the right things and uh, allows the true history to be revealed without any political interference from any side you know just let the facts be revealed whatever they are whatever they are the truth needs to come out that's all all right let's see some more questions Aryan Johan says what is the difference between a terrorist and a rebellion what are my thoughts on the Balochistan Liberation Army as a terrorist group by the US and European Union so it all depends on how you want to portray it uh terrorists and rebellions right so terrorists typically what they do is that they try to uh they don't actually fight a proper war they fight guerrilla warfare and they stay hidden and they try to uh inflict casualties on the civilian population the non combatant population in the hope of terrorizing the common people and of destroying their way of life so the typical uh, 
tools of the trade are bomb blasts car bombs train bombs and so on which uh, go to the very heart of the lifestyle of the people so it be, makes people terrified of uh, ever going outside in public again of getting on a plane or a train or a car or going out in public into a market because these are the things that are typically targeted by terrorists so terrorists typically target the civilians the non combatants men women children the innocent people that is terrorism a rebellion is a different thing a rebellion can be justifiable it can have you can have just causes for violence in a rebellion terrorism can never be justified because they target innocent men women and children a rebellion can be fought against an armed force against an occupying force for instance uh, the 1857 war of independence was portrayed as a mutiny a rebellion etc it was a just war for the freedom for the liberation of india from the foreign occupier so you can call it a rebellion you can call it a war whatever but that that had clear justification it was morally correct so rebels a rebellion can be against an occupying force or against a uh, a regime that is unjust unfair and brutal as long as it targets the organs of the state uh, and the and the armed forces of the state then it is a rebellion the moment it starts targeting civilians it is terrorism and it has to be crushed and defeated right now the balochistan liberation army are they killing civilians i don't think so they are trying to fight the occupying pakistani armed forces and they are targeting the chinese who are in who have infiltrated into balochistan and who are now trying to uh, steal the resources of balochistan i think that is perfectly justified right uh balochistan was supposed to be a free state a free country pakistan illegally invaded and annexed it in the in the late 1940s right and the people the will of the pre- people was crushed the people have been brutalized oppressed i mean the atrocities that have been perfect perpetrated there by the pakistani army and the establishment are just horrific and now pakistan has become a chinese colony de facto chinese colony and the chinese are targeting balochistan for all of its resources so they want to extract all the resources of uh, resources of balochistan balochistan is a very resource rich region and all of these resources are have until now been extracted by pakistan and now the, the the chinese are involved in this so the balochistan liberation army is fighting for the freedom of balochistan and its people from these occupying powers they are not killing men women children they are not killing civilians they are fighting the occupying pakistani army and the chinese occupiers so that is the difference between terrorists and genuine rebels the balochistan liberation army is not a terrorist organization they are fighting for the freedom of their land now the pakistanis and chinese and whoever else will want to portray them as terrorists because it doesn't suit their agenda right so they will full they will further their agenda by portraying them as terrorists and i'm not sure about the european union and the us if they have also portrayed the bla as terrorists but at least the pakistanis call them terrorists and we know why but they are not really terrorists because they don't target civilians very simple utkarsh says isn't skandagupta one of the most underrated heroes considering he devoted himself so much to the motherland's protection absolutely yes i agree skandagupta was one of the gupta emperors in the first millennium uh, ad 
he uh, fought off the initial Hunnic invasions of India. The Shweta Hunas, the White Huns, the Heptalites had invaded India from the north. And Skandagupta devoted his life to, to uh, fighting off these invasions by these nomadic uh, peoples. He, I think he uh, made this public uh, promise to his people that I will not sleep on a bed and I will not eat on a plate as long as my country is under invasion. I will sleep on the floor and I will eat on a leaf until I defeat the invasions. So that's the public promise he made and that's the promise that he kept. So he devoted his entire life to fighting off these Hunnic invasions and he succeeded in defeating them. He succeeded in keeping India free of the invaders. So he's one of the great heroes of India, one of the great emperors and our textbooks don't mention him. So that's the thing, right? That's the thing about our Indian historians. They don't want to... uh, they don't want to give credit to the great heroes of India because it makes uh, their it, it goes against their agenda. Their agenda is to portray India as a nation of losers, a nation that has always lost military wars, that has always lost to invaders. And the truth is something very different. So they conveniently keep these episodes of history out of our textbooks. So yes, our emperor Skandagupta is one of the great heroes of our history. And we need to recognize heroes such as him. Okay, this is a good question by Goku. The Japanese have been following Dharma for centuries. Then why did they commit barbaric atrocities, which is clearly not Dharma, against the Chinese and the Koreans during their imperialist regime? Very good question. I had also said in the past that uh, there's a reason why Asian empires have never have never been expansionist and they have never been they have never been extractive like the european colonizers see what the european colonizers did in africa they destroyed africa extracted all the wealth out of africa and impoverished africa see what they did to india before the british came to india india's gdp was more than one third of the entire world's gdp by the time the british left india's gdp was less than 2% of the world's gdp and india's life expectancy was less than 30 That's what they did to India. They destroyed India totally in all ways and they extracted all the wealth out of India. Now, Asian emperors, Chinggis Khan, for instance, and various other emperors, they have also gone to war. They have also made forged vast empires and yet they never indulged in the kind of practices the Europeans indulged in. They never impoverished any conquered territory. The Cholas conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia, but they enriched Southeast Asia. They did not impoverish Southeast Asia. They did not extract all the wealth out of Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. And similarly, the Japanese have also been following Dharma for almost nearly 2,000 years, at least 1,500 years. And yet, you are right. They committed horrific atrocities in China, in Korea, in the first half of the 20th century. Why is it so? Despite following Dharmic culture, why did they do this? That is the question. You To understand why they did this, you have to go back a century. Go back to the uh, second half of the 19th century, the Meiji Restoration. So the Meiji Emperor of Japan decided to totally transform Japanese society by westernizing Japanese society. He tried his best to 
stamp out Buddhism from Japan. He portrayed Buddhism as a foreign religion, as a foreign culture. He did his best to destroy Buddhism and he failed. But he was able, he succeeded in creating this idea, this perception in Japan that Buddhism is a separate foreign religion. So today, Japan recognizes two native religions, Shinto and Buddhism. They are now seen as separate. Before the Meiji Restoration, they were seen as the same thing because they were so, because temples in Japan, uh, they, they followed both practices. It was very well syncretized. They had Shinto practices as well as Buddhist practices. Now it's been separated. So that is one thing that came out of the Meiji Restoration. And the Meiji Restoration aimed to secularize and westernize Japan, to stamp out Buddhism and so on. So the aim of the emperor was to was to turn Japan into a non-dharmic society. He failed to do that when it comes to the people of Japan, but he did turn his entire state apparatus into a non-dharmic apparatus. The army, the bureaucracy, the governance system, all that became completely non-dharmic. It, it tried to imitate the West. And the consequences are very clearly see, visible in the kind of brutality and atrocities they perpetrated on the people of China and of Korea, which can never ever be allowed or contemplated in if, if the system was a dharmic system. It, it just won't happen if the system was a dharmic system. It's so, so the reason for these barbaric atrocities was the non-dharmic, the de-dharmification of the Japanese state apparatus, of the Japanese armed forces. See, before, see what they did was that they, they uh, destroyed the samurais. They massacred and killed most of the samurais. The samurais were the original warriors and warlords of Japan. They were all Buddhists. They had a very clear code of conduct called Bushido. Bushido. Bushido is the Japanese dharmic way of the samurai. It is a Buddhist samurai code of conduct in which it is very clear what you can do and what you simply cannot do. And honor is the highest thing in Bushido. So the, so they eradicated Bushido and they brought in a Western code of conduct, Western principles, Western morality. And that is why Japan went to the way of hell in during the First and Second World War uh, era, during the time. I mean, what they did in Nanjing is horrific. You can't, I mean, uh, it's horrific, absolutely horrific, that the kind of atrocities they perpetrated in, in Nanjing and in Korea. I mean, just unspeakable what they did. So it's all because they abandoned the path of Dharma. That's why they did this. Japan today is to still to a large extent a Dharmic country. The people follow Buddhism and Shinto both. Of course, there is a great deal of Christianization that's happened during the US, as a consequence of the US occupation of Japan, which still continues. But it is still very much a Dharmic society. So I don't see that ever happening again, as long as the society remains true to its culture. So I hope that answers the question. Very good question. Purushottam says, what is the origin of the Gorkha people? Are they related to Guru Goraknath? I think I spoke about this uh, in the pre one of the previous episodes. The uh, See, the origin of the Gorkha people, again, it's not very well documented by historians, but what I've heard, the, the legendary... It's not mythical, it's legendary. Legendary is, um, the difference between legend and history is that legends 
are recollections, oral recollections of history whose textual evidence has been destroyed. It means that it actually most likely all happened, but we currently don't have the uh, written evidence for it. So the legend goes as, as it goes like this, that there was this great warrior, Bappa Rawal, about a thousand years ago, a great Rajput warrior, Bappa, Bappa Rawal, who fought the Turkic invaders of India, defeated them and, and expelled them from Western India, from the Punjab region, present day Pakistan. Uh, he established the city, which is now known as Rawalpindi. And his his guru was this great uh, uh, guru, Goraknath, Baba Goraknath. So after he succeeded in uh, defeating the Turks and expelling them from Western India, he went back to his guru with his followers, with his soldiers. And the guru said, now we should all go and settle down in Northern India near the Himalayas. So they went northwards and they settled down in the foothills of the Himalayas, present day Nepal. Right, and there they intermarried with the local people, and their descendants are today's Gorkhas. They are called Gorkhas because they are the followers of Baba Goraknath. So that is the legend about the origin of the Gorkhas. They are the descendants of the Rajputs and of the local people of the Himalayan foothills of India. So that's why they are great warriors. They still have this great martial tradition. They are one of some of the best warriors you will find on the face of the planet. And uh, they serve in the Indian army and they also serve sadly in the British army where they are treated like second class citizens. So that is the origin of the Gorkhas. They are great warriors. They are the descendants of the Rajputs who, who protected India and of the local people of the Himalayan foothills. Great warriors and great sons and daughters of India, of Indian culture and Indian civilization. So that's what I can say. But it would be nice if historians were to actually document this properly. Akshat asks, in the military, what do you think is more important? Submarines, aircraft, nuclear weapons, hypersonic defense system, alliances, geopolitical alliances like NATO, AUK, US, intelligence, technology, armed personnel or what? You know what, Akshat, all of this is important. Everything has its own specific place in the big context of national security. You do need, say, submarines. I think India, a nation with a coastline as large as India, needs 10 times more submarines than, I would not say 10 times. We currently have about 12, 13 functional submarines. I would say that India needs at least 80, 90, maybe 100 submarines to properly defend and administer the Indian Ocean region. India needs those many submarines. Aircraft, yes, aircraft are valuable. You... you I think submarines are currently more valuable than aircraft carriers. Aircraft carriers, carriers are a big liability in my opinion. Submarines are way more dangerous. But it's always nice to have, if you can afford it, one or two aircraft carriers. Aircraft do uh, act as force multipliers. So aircraft have a certain role to play, an important role to play. You need aircraft such as anti-submarine warfare aircraft, the those Poseidon aircraft. Uh, you need fighter aircraft, you need helicopters, and so on and so forth. Reconnaissance aircraft, drones, etc. So various kinds of aircraft play a variety of roles. Nuclear weapons are overall good. They are overall very important to India's national security. Hypersonic defense system is a totally different story. 
it is not about the naval domain but in the uh, the overall uh, terrestrial domain of national security you do need alliances the better the stronger your alliances the more secure you are so yes nato auk us all that intelligence is extremely important so that you know what's happening so that you can predict things before they happen you need various kinds of intelligence osint sigint and so on and so forth you need satellites in space that can monitor your the the uh, the regions that are of your interest you need uh, cyber technology various other technologies you need a strong strong uh, army personnel and so on so all of this is important all of it has a certain critical role to play in national security national defense and in of- offense as well i mean security is about defense as well as offense so all of this is important but when it comes to maritime security certain things become more important when it comes to space security other things become important rocket launches missiles satellites remote sensing uh, technology all that becomes important when it comes to the terrestrial domain your tanks become important your your infrastructure becomes important uh and so on and so forth so all of it is important you need a strong air force as well not just for defensive operations but for offensive operations as well so currently we have what 28 squadrons of aircraft which is woefully inadequate for our requirements so typically they say you need 36 squadrons but if your aircraft are capable enough they are if they are foreign 4.5 generation aircraft or fourth generation aircraft then you can make do with less aircraft and so on the some defense analysts will say that the the converse also applies even if you have second generation or third generation aircraft if you have a thousand of those well you can take take on any threat so quality matters quantity also matters quantity is very important quantity has a quality of its own so we need all of these things it's a very complicated very complex geopolitical environment but all of these factors that you have outlined in the question they are all very important india cannot afford to take any of these lightly okay let's take some more questions jatin asks how to be an astronomer or astrophysicist or cosmologist how much time will it consume well it all depends you know if you want the official degrees then you have to go through the entire grind of the education system you need a college degree a bachelor's degree in 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 science probably with physics as your as your main subject then you need to go into your university level level courses you need to acquire a masters degree in in any discipline in physics hopefully in astronomy astrophysics cosmology if any indian any indian university actually gives these degrees typically it's in uh, nuclear physics or or something else electronics electronics is portrayed as physics nowadays in indian universities and so on so if you want to acquire a degree you will have to go through the entire grind of the education system but if you actually want to learn these things you can do everything on your own provided you understand mathematics provided you have a good grasp of mathematics you can learn these subjects 
at least astronomy in two three years doing self study you can buy certain standard books and there are lots of online courses as well entire online lectures from mit and uh, cornell etc so you can go through these lectures very high quality lectures i think even indian universities like iits etc have online lectures nowadays which are available for free nptel courses and all, and so on so you can actually if you are interested gain all the knowledge for free online you may have to buy a few textbooks which are reasonably cheap and you can actually acquire the knowledge necessary for doing the research in astronomy in maybe 2 3 years if you have the sufficient mathematical background when it comes to astrophysics and cosmology it's much harder because the mathematics is much more involved it's much more advanced mathematics you need a much stronger foundation in physics in addition to mathematics to do astrophysics and cosmology you will need to see for astronomy it's just about observing observing the stars and the various uh, celestial phenomena so for that you don't need really need to understand electromagnetism and cos- uh, and uh, quantum mechanics and relativity and all that but in the case of astrophysics you you need the knowledge of these of these uh, fields you will need to understand electrodynamics electromagnetism you will need to understand solid state physics you need to understand quantum mechanics quantum field theory and general relativity as well in addition to some other things so it's much harder to become an astrophysicist or a cosmologist cosmologer whatever you call it astronomy is much easier so it depends on what you want to do so that's a very general answer it depends on where you stand what your mathematical background is and whether you have studied physics yes or no up to which level it all depends on that okay let's take more questions okay clash cloud says what was the renaissance era in europe so the renaissance era in europe was the period of time about 500 or 600 years ago starting around that time when europe became very prosperous material prosperity and because of this material prosperity there was a great deal of investment in the arts and all that it all began i believe in italy in the florentine and other regions and uh, you had all these great artists like michael angelo leonardo da vinci raffaele donatello and all all these guys who produced all this great art and it uh, led to a flowering of the art and culture music classical music and so on and all that so it was all triggered off by this period of great financial prosperity in europe so that was the renaissance era so if you want a renaissance renaissance in any culture the initial starting condition the non negotiable condition is that you need to become financially economically very prosperous when the entire society is economically prosperous and stable that's when they are able to dedicate a great deal of time and effort energy all that into the arts and all these things you know if your society is poor you will never have a renaissance so that in very brief is the renaissance era in europe about 500 600 years ago is when it started and the uh, flowering of this era the, the greatest period of this era was about 
500, 400 or 300 years ago, I think. I haven't studied in great detail, but that's the rough time period in which it happened. And that's when you had all this great art, all these great structure, sculptures, the great paintings, and all this great classical architecture that emerged in Europe. So that's the Renaissance era. Okay, let's take some more questions. Harsh Jen says, why doesn't the Archaeological Survey of India work efficiently? See, the ASI is, is something that the British started. The Archaeological Survey of India was, was uh, established by the uh, British occupiers of India, the British Raj, in the 19th century, I believe. And the purpose of the ASI was to uh, uncover to some extent the history of India, to find all the interesting archaeological artifacts. And one of the most important uh, tasks the ASI performed was to uh, was to help the British steal India's treasures. So you will find, if you go to the Western countries, the London Museum, etc., you will find incredible amounts of priceless Indian treasures, arts, sculpture, sculptures, and so on all housed in that museum and you will find the this this thing everywhere throughout the west the metropolitan museum in new york and various other museums lots of private collections and all so much of india's ancient heritage has been stolen in this manner much of it happened during the british occupation of india and the asi was very much part of it so it's a colonial institution after india's independence we had some good even great archaeologists in the ASI, like, like Professor B.B. Lal, etc. But overall, it is an organization that's run by bureaucrats who are not archaeologists. These people have no understanding of archaeology or history. They are simply bureaucrats and they run the ASI. And it is run in a typical bureaucratic fashion, complete neglect of India's history. They don't care about the history. They don't care about the heritage. Even today, there are so many monuments that come under the protection of the ASI officially, from which everything is being stolen. Even today, there is this great trade that's happening, this great export of Indian treasures, this great plunder and loot of Indian heritage that is still happening as of today under the nose of the ASI. I have a video on this channel in which I've documented, I've demonstrated that priceless artifacts from the Harappan era of India's history are being sold online on in on online auction sites. Now, a significant portion of this is being stolen from Pakistan, but some of it is being stolen from India as well. And you, you can see reports in India's media, in, in the various news outlets, which show that, you know, these archaeological sites like Rakigari and Birana, etc., they have been plundered openly by various elements, even though they are officially under the jurisdiction and protection of the ASI. It's all because of the complete apathy and neglect of the people who run the ASI, these bureaucratic-minded people, which just don't care. And the focus of the ASI is in restoring and preserving Mughal monuments and British-era monuments. You go to Mumbai, the city of Mumbai, you have all these uh, uh, sites, all these places like the British colonial architecture, and the art deco buildings, etc., that are preserved and protected by the ASI. 
but you will find other places that should be under the protection that are completely neglected and uh, the taj mahal comes under the asi in the red fort in fatehpur sikri and so on these places are very well protected and restoration work is done but india's true heritage see the mughal monuments the british era monuments are not our heritage they are not the heritage of india they are what the foreign occupiers and oppressors of india constructed with indian money with indian labor but it was done according to their culture and their tastes it does not represent the true heritage of india the true heritage of india is not uh important for the asi and that's what we see all the time all the time there are thousands of examples of this so the reason the main reason for the for why the asi doesn't do its work properly is first of all it's run by bureaucrats who just don't care about india's culture they are all mentally colonized secondly the purpose of the asi is is the origin of the asi is colonial in nature and it is very much still a colonial institution it just seeks to protect and preserve mughal and british era monuments so these are some of the factors why the asi is so useless i would say that we need to disband the asi and create a new professional organization of professional archaeologists and organization that actually works towards preserving the true heritage of india so the asi needs to be disband disbanded and scrapped but obviously the government won't do that so so we are stuck with it as of now okay or arpit mahan says my history teacher taught us that even in the vedic culture beef was served on rare and very special occasions is there any truth some scholars have interpreted some ancient texts as saying that on extremely rare occasions uh cattle could sometimes very rarely be slaughtered as a sacrifice as an as, a, as an offering to the gods some scholars have interpreted some texts as meaning that way uh we still don't have a complete consensus consensus on this so i truly because i haven't studied these uh, these portions of the texts myself so i cannot give you first hand yes or no answers but i am aware of certain scholars who have made these claims so if your history teacher is aware of these claims and if if he or she believes these claims then they would have taught this to you i am not sure if even if the if a if a any cattle was slaughtered i am not sure if they would actually be consumed by by people so it is still something that is a matter of controversy a matter of debate the question is not settled some people have made this claim but i personally am not in a position to answer this because it is still something that has not been settled conclusively right but even if something like this happened on very rare occasions it is just an exception it's not a practice right so we know as a fact that uh, cow slaughter is a great sin in indian culture for thousands of years and the consumption of beef is considered to be the worst of sins in indian culture for thousands of years so that is the overall fact that we are aware of so these uh, outliers and uh, these rare data points are not really that important even if this were to be true right so 
So that's the answer. All right, some more questions. Okay, this is by Somnath Abhishek. Agriculture. What's your opinion of on the modernization of our farming practices in our country? How can technology help to increase our output and help boost our production? Very good question. I think more than half of the population of the country, of India, even today in the 21st century is, is engaged in agriculture. I think that most of these people do it because they have no other option. Everybody wants to study and go to, go to a big city where there are more opportunities and have a more prosperous life. Everybody wants that. Every farmer wants their kid to go out of agriculture. Because, you know, agriculture is, if you have half of the country, more than half the country, engaged in an occupation that accounts for only about 5% of the GDP, there's clearly a big problem here. So if something accounts for only five, roughly 5% 5 of India's GDP, then I would say that only 5% of India's population should be engaged in that in that occupation and we can free up the rest of the population to do more productive work right according to whatever aptitudes and interests they have so yes it is very important for us to modernize agriculture bring in modern 21st century technology in agriculture in the farming practices big machinery etc so that you can have fewer people engaged in agriculture and there is more output. The problem is that there are not enough opportunities today in India in various sectors, in the private sector, in the government sector. There are not enough jobs that are being created. There is not enough manufacturing that being done in India that can absorb all this surplus population that is currently engaged in agriculture. When the opportunities become available, people will go out of agriculture and start doing other work. What happened, we have to look at the history of this, you know. So what the British did in India is they destroyed India's indigenous industries. India was the world's original, first fully industrialized civilization. From the Harappan times itself, India was a fully industrialized civilization. We had indigenous industries in, in, uh, in metal works, in, in, uh, uh, in the textiles, in various other sectors and so on, in shipbuilding, in uh, gunpowder manufacture, in arms and ammunition, in so many other things. The British destroyed India's indigenous industries and enforced the majority of India's population into subsistence farming. And that's why today, as a consequence, over half the population of India is still engaged in agriculture. Their ancestors were forced into it. Their livelihoods were destroyed by the British and they were forced into subsistence farming. And that is the root of India's impoverishment, actually. So India needs to, over time in the next couple of decades, ensure that we create enough opportunities for jobs in the country so that, so that people can move out of agriculture, which they are doing because they have no other choice, and start getting involved in much more productive work 
and then we can bring in modern technology into agriculture so that maybe 5% of the people of india can deal with the entire agriculture sector so that's something that needs to happen it will greatly free up the unleash the actual true potential of the people of india if this can be done so it's a very good question this is a, another very interesting question adarsh asks what prevents a military coup from happening in any democratic country do you see it ever happening in india in the next 20 to 30 years military coup so that's a very interesting question and i don't see a military coup happening in india in the next 20 to 30 years or in the next 50 years i don't see it happening there is this very interesting very interesting book called coup d'etat by uh, edward luthwak let me see if i can open this up let me let me try and share the screen and show you this book one second just a second right so this is a book by edward luthwak it's called coup d'etat a practical handbook now this book was published in 1968 and it showed step by step how governments can be overthrown it's like a manual for uh, executing and implementing a coup d'etat right in this book edward luthwak has written about the conditions that need to be in place for a coup to succeed and he has also shown what kind of uh, society uh, is not conducive to a coup ever succeeding and uh, so i'll not go into the details but what he says is that if you need to have a hom- a, a homogeneous kind of society just one ethnic group and one culture one religion if you have that sort of society then a coup can succeed if you have a very diverse multi ethnic multicultural pluralistic society a true democratic society then a coup can never succeed it's impossible for a coup to succeed in the in such a society and india is such a society india can be well construed to be a multi ethnic multicultural very diverse very pluralistic society with lots of different centers of power the federal structure of india or so on so that is why a coup can never succeed in india india is not a monoculture it is not a single ethnicity because you see in india everybody sees themselves as a separate tamil said that we are separate from north indians Uh, the bengalis say that we are not we are very different from the odias the odias will will say we are very different from the people of andhra the people of andhra will say that we are very very different from gujaratis the gujaratis will say we are we are very different from the punjabis and so on and so forth everybody has their own ethnic group imagined ethnic group imagined culture and there are so many linguistic differences differences in uh, in traditions and so on and so forth in practices and so on so it's a very 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 diverse society and in a society like that a coup can never ever succeed 
conversely, if you have a country in which you have a single religion, then a coup can succeed. That's why Pakistan is always ruled by the military, even though it is nominally a democracy. And that is also why China is susceptible to a military coup. Because China is ruled as a monoculture, just one culture, which is the culture of the Chinese Communist Party. And the official state religion is atheism. Atheism itself is a religion, you know, in a way. So China is a monoculture. There is only one dominant ethnic group, the Han Chinese. Everybody else is marginalized. In a society like China, a coup can certainly succeed. And that's why the Chinese emperors, like the current president, Mr. Xi Jinping, they're always paranoid about being overthrown. So that's why China is a very militaristic, dictatorial country. So that's what prevents a military coup from happening. Democracy is not important. It can happen even in a democratic country if it is a single ethnic group, if the country has a single ethnic group and a single culture or religion. In that case, it can happen even in a democratic country. But even in a country that is not a democracy, if it is a pluralistic country, a coup can never succeed and so on and so forth. You know, So very, very interesting question. I would recommend that if, if you can get your hands on that book, Coup d'etat by, uh, by Edward Luthwak, then, then you should try and read it. It's a very interesting book. Suprabha Chakraborty asks, should we change our education system to how it used to be in ancient India? I, um, I would say that we certainly need to change the education system. We need to transform it radically. We need to reform it greatly. But it can. we can never bring it back to the state it was in ancient India. Because ancient India was a thousand years ago, before the invasions, Turkic invasions. It was a very different culture, very different society. It was a very different time. The population was much, much lesser than what it is today in India. So the entire context has changed today. What we can do is we can draw inspiration from the best practices that were in place a thousand years ago. And we can try and implement something similar to that, but in the 21st century context with 21st century means and 21st century methods. We need to look forward but be inspired by what happened in the past. We cannot try to go back to the state we were in a thousand years ago. It's simply impossible. We have to embrace the 21st century. We have to embrace embrace everything that is there today. We have always been a culture that has been at the forefront of science and technology. So we have to embrace 21st century science and technology and use that to take our education system forward. So that is what needs to happen. There are a number of things that can be done to truly transform the education system. But one would need the government to show some willingness for that. We currently are not have not yet reached that stage. Right, right, right. Let's take some more questions. Many of the questions I see I have already answered those questions, so I will not take those. Let's take this question. Ishwar Roshan says, China claims that they have ruled Tibet for 800 years in the past. 
Yeah, the Chinese Communist Party claims that their emperors ruled Tibet. And that is, they, according to them, what gives their uh, occupation of Tibet legitimacy, historical legitimacy. So let us unpack this claim that the Chinese Communist Party continually communicates to the world. That our emperors ruled Tibet and that's why we are the legitimate rulers of Tibet. First of all, Tibet is a different different ethnicity, it's a different culture. The Tibetan language has nothing to do with the Chinese language. The Tibetan people are a different ethnic group. They are not Chinese, they're not Han Chinese. The Tibetan culture is totally different from Chinese culture. Tibet is part of the Indosphere. Tibetan culture is a very interesting and very beautiful local manifestation of Indian culture. Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism is a very specific local manifestation of Indian culture, of of Dharma with Tibetan characteristics. Right? So there is nothing in common between the Han Chinese and the Tibetans. Nothing in common. Now they claim that their emperors ruled Tibet. And that's why Tibet is a conquered country, a conquered people. And that's why the Chinese Communist Party has the right to rule Tibet. That's the claim. So let's understand what is the basis of this claim. The basis of this claim is the assertion by the Chinese Communist Party that the Chinese Yuan dynasty ruled Tibet. Okay, so let's understand what actually happened during this time. What was the Yuan dynasty? The Chinese Yuan dynasty that ruled from Beijing. What was this Yuan dynasty? The first actual emperor of the Yuan dynasty was Kublai Khan. What was Kublai Khan's ethnicity? He was Mongol. Both his parents were Mongols. What was his mother tongue? It was the Mongol language. What was his culture? It was Buddhism. His religion was Buddhism. His ancestral culture, religion was Thengrism. Again, that is non-Chinese. His grandfather was the greatest conqueror of all time, Chinggis Khan, who conquered China and smashed China. He flattened the city of Beijing. Right? So the Yuan dynasty was a Mongol dynasty that conquered China and they ruled as conquerors. It was a conquest dynasty. It was not a Chinese dynasty. And in their historiography, the first emperor of China was actually Chinggis Khan, not Kublai. And the second emperor of China was Ogode Khan. And the third was Kublai Khan. So this was a Mongol dynasty that conquered China and ruled China as foreign occupiers. Now, what is the relationship between the Mongol Yuan dynasty and the Tibetans? It was a guru-shishya relationship, a teacher-student relationship. Kublai Khan declared, well, they don't declare officially, but he made Buddhism the state religion, the state culture. Okay, so that's what it did. And the Mongols obviously did not have a great deal of understanding of Buddhism. So he employed Tibetan gurus as the official gurus of the empire. Of, of Buddhism, of the empire. So, the Yuan dynasty took Tibet as a protectorate. They pledged their protection to Tibet. They did not invade Tibet 
ever. They did not occupy Tibet ever with their soldiers. They simply extended their official protection to Tibet as a protectorate. Mongol soldiers passed through Tibet on many occasions. When the great Chinggis Khan, when the great Sri Chinggis Khan went westwards to destroy the Khwarazm Empire of the Turks, he went through Tibet. He did not stop in Tibet. He did not destroy Tibet. He did not touch the Tibetan people. He just passed through Tibet, went to Iran and Central Asia, destroyed everything there in retaliation for their atrocities. And then he came back to Mongolia, again through Tibet. Again, he did not stop in Tibet or conquer Tibet or occupy Tibet. He just went back. So the Mongolians never conquered Tibet. They never occupied Tibet. They extended their protection to Tibet and they treated the Tibetans as their gurus. So it was a guru-shishya relationship, a teacher-student relationship. Tibet was not a client state or a conquered kingdom. It was a protectorate. So the claim that the Chinese Yuan dynasty conquered Tibet and ruled Tibet is false. It is a lie. First of all, the Yuan dynasty was not Chinese. And secondly, they did not ever conquer or rule Tibet. So that is the lie that the Chinese Communist Party is using to justify their illegal, illegitimate and brutal occupation of Tibet. That's the answer, sir. Okay, let's take some more questions. Prakriti Verma asks, if religions like Jainism and Buddhism were started after the demise of their last Tirthankar and Buddha respectively, then how do we know that there were gurus even before them? Okay, Prakriti. So first thing I would like to say is that Jainism and Buddhism and Hinduism are not religions. There is only one there is no religion in India. Really, there are only three religions, which are the Abrahamic religions. Uh, Judaism is the oldest, then Christianity, and then Islam. These are the three religions. And the Western world tries to portray all other cultures and traditions as religions. The definition of a religion is this. It has a single God, a single prophet, and a single holy book. That is the definition of a religion. When it comes to Jaina Dharma, Bodha Dharma, or Sanatana Dharma, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of sacred texts. There are no prophets. And there is a multitude of gods and divinities. Divinity in Dharma lies in all of us. All of us have a spark of divinity in us. Divinity permeates the entire universe. Everything is a manifestation of divinity. There are gods everywhere. There, is, there are gods in trees, gods in animals, gods in your guests, Atiti Devo Bhava, and gods everything, everywhere. So Jaina Dharma, Bodha Dharma, Hinduism, what you call Hinduism today, these are not religions. This is the ancient ancestral culture of India and of the entire Indo-European world of the past. It was all wiped out from Europe by the advent of Christianity. It was wiped out by force, by brutality. And the only place where this ancient culture persists is India. 
So that is about religions. So Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Hinduism are not four different religions. It is just the same, it's the same tradition. These are different manifestations, these are different schools of thought, different uh, schools of philosophical thought of the same ancient tradition and culture. Now, Jainism did not begin with the demise of Vardhaman Mahavir, the last Tirthankar. According to Jaina tradition, their tradition is as old as Dharma itself. Their tradition is Dharma itself, what we call Hinduism or Buddhism. And they have had a very long lineage of Tirthankars who came before Vardhaman Mahavir. I think Vardhaman Mahavir was, if I am not mistaken, the 24th Tirthankar. I think so. If I am mistaken, I apologize. But I think he was the 24th Tirthankar, according to Jaina tradition. So now the question is, why do we, should we believe this? This is the ancient tradition of the Jaina Dharma, and why should we not believe it? And similarly, uh, in, in both the Dharma, uh, Siddhartha Gautam was simply the last known Buddha. There were many Buddhas before him, and there will be Buddhas again who will emerge in the future. So it's a very long lineage of Buddhas and great gurus, great spiritual leaders. It is something that is going to continue in the future. So that is the context in which uh, we should look at these uh, matters. So these are not religions, right? And they did not start after the demise of their last Tirthankar and Buddha. These are living traditions that are very, very ancient. They are as ancient as Dharma itself. They are as ancient as India and the Indian people itself. We don't even know when Indian culture first emerged because we have this uh, archaeological record that goes back at least 10,000 years in the Indian subcontinent and there is clear evidence of cultural continuity for this 10,000 years. So we had the same culture. It was not some different culture earlier. We had the same culture. And I would say that Jaina, Jaina Dharma, Bodh Dharma, etc., they're all part of the same tradition, right? It is now today construed and interpreted by our academics and historians as four different religions, which is just lies. It is, it is uh, they're trying to force fit Western concepts on Indian traditions. It doesn't work like that. But unfortunately, this is what we're taught today. And this is how everybody sees Indian culture. We now see Indian culture, our own culture, through Western eyes. That is called mental colonization. We have to get over this. We have to decolonize our minds. We have to unlearn the nonsense we have been taught and we have to relearn our history in whatever way we best can. So good question, Prakriti. I hope that answers the question. Rumble TV asks, why are Canada and the US best friends forever? BFF. Uh, there is this, uh, there is this uh, alliance, official alliance called the Five Eyes Alliance. Five Eyes Alliance. <clears throat> that is the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. These five countries have an official alliance in which they share all their intelligence and they share and they have this military cooperation, very close 
military cooperation and so on these five countries these are the five anglo saxon dominated countries the five english speaking countries so they trust each other more than they trust any other country so the the reason why they are bff best friends forever is is that because they have the same origins they have the same culture the same language they are all the uh, result the product of british colonialism british invaders invaded and occupied north america they destroyed the native culture and the native people it was a horrific genocide the native americans were wiped out very few of them remain and they are today even today they live very uh they are still deeply marginalized even today they are second class citizens in america in the us and also in canada so the british occupiers colonizers colonized the whole of north america which is now the us and canada they also colonized australia did the same kind of genocide there and today it is the country of australia similarly in new zealand also they to a large extent wiped out the natives and the culture the maoris still exist in new zealand they are also second class citizens there the maori culture is being eroded and wiped out today from new zealand and so on so these are all um, countries that are the result the product of british colonization and genocide of the natives right so they all originate from england and that's why they are all best friends forever that's why they have this very close knit cooperation among each other they have the same origins they have very similar histories and they are all ruled by people who are not native to the land so that explains why they are best friends forever dungar singh chauhan asks why did buddha and mahavir question the authority of the vedas if these were part of hinduism okay see there is no such thing as hinduism there is something called dharma dharma and both the dharma and jaina dharma are part of overall dharma these are dharmic schools of thought philosophical schools of thought i have explained this multiple times in the past you can check out my older videos about this indian philosophy in which you have nine systems of indian philosophy uh, charvaka jaina bodha mimamsa vedanta uh, yoga sankhya and so on and so forth right nine of these some of these schools of thought can be construed to be atheistic schools of thought in which they do not recognize the existence of any divinity any creator god for instance charvaka does not recognize any it is a purely materialistic school of thought there is no god there is no karma there is no nothing but it is also part of sanatan dharma similarly in uh, jaina dharma for instance there is no concept of god but it does recognize the existence of the soul every human being has an eternal soul every animal has an eternal soul every particle has a certain amount of soul in it even trees have souls but the consciousness levels are less and jaina dharma also recognizes the law of karma but it does not recognize the existence of any god but all the characteristics are still very much dharmic it does emphasize non violence and so on so it is very much part of dharma similarly both the dharma 
does not recognize the existence of any god but it does recognize the existence of the soul atma now you will be taught by your teachers and by history textbooks that according to both the dharma the soul is not permanent the soul also is temporary which is a lie and your teachers and your history textbooks will teach you that both the dharma does not recognize the authority of the vedas that is again a lie what i would encourage you to do is to read the lord buddha's deathbed discourse the mahaparinirvana discourse the last public discourse that he gave the night before he died in the mahaparinirvana discourse he has specifically clarified that he taught certain things because people were very immature they could not understand things in their entirety but in the last discourse he clearly stated that the atma is permanent it is not temporary and he also stated that the vedas are the supreme authority mahaparinirvana discourse read it it's available online i think it's very strange that all these scholars even buddhist scholars try to portray both the dharma as something that does not recognize the vedas and it 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 treats the soul as a temporary thing i don't understand what is the agenda in trying to sideline the last discourse of lord buddha of gautam buddha in the city of kushinagar the night before he died he gave this public discourse and in that in that discourse he has clearly recognized the authority of the vedas and the permanence of the atma so it very much brings buddhism under the uh, umbrella of sanatan dharma in the in the in uh, in the jain dharma i think uh, the existence of god is denied of god or gods is denied atma is there karma is there and it also questions the authority of the vedas that's why jain dharma is considered to be a gnostic school of thought so gnostic is not something that denies the existence of god but it is something that uh, questions the authority of the vedas so according to that definition jain dharma is a gnostic school of thought but it still does come under the overall framework of sanatan dharma so i hope that answers your question dungar i it's a very good question many people have this question i have answered it to some extent in the past but i am glad that you gave me the opportunity to clarify this matter good right let's take a couple more questions aditya says why do people give credit of freedom to mohandas gandhi when more than 7 lakhs people were martyred for our freedom we don't even know how many people died for our freedom we had so many uh, rebellions against the british occupation that are simply erased from history all the records have been wiped out they are not mentioned in our textbooks there have been many local uh, uprisings against the british that were crushed brutally many massacres happened in 1946 there was a massacre in the city of mumbai there was a massacre in the city of karachi hundreds if not thousands of people were shot on the streets the way people were shot in the 1989 tiananmen square massacre 
But do our historians speak about this? No, they don't speak about this. It happened just one year before the transfer of power in 1947. People were shot to death, hundreds of people on the streets of Mumbai, on the streets of Karachi. And our great historians do not write about this. And our great Mahatma, Mr. Gandhi, did not say a word against this. So this is the problem. Our historians, our school textbooks, our politicians, our leaders, they all make a public display of worshipping Mohandas Gandhi. And that's why people believe them. If you are taught from the age of three that we owe our freedom to Mr. Mohandas Gandhi, you're going to believe it. It's not your fault you don't you believe this, right? I don't blame the people of India. They have been misinformed from the time they were born, from the time they went to school on the first day. And this misinformation continues even after you leave the education system. The media keeps portraying Gandhi as a Mahatma. The movies keep doing that. The politicians keep doing that. He is even there on, on the currency notes in India. So it is not the fault of the people of India that they believe that Gandhi is the reason why we got our freedom. We still haven't got our freedom. We are still a colonized country. And as long as we keep worshipping Mohandas Gandhi, we're going to stay colonized. So, so many people, millions of people, tens of lakhs of people have given their lives and their blood for the freedom of the country. And they have all been erased from history. And everything is now attributed to the fake Mahatma, Mohandas Gandhi. So this needs to change. And I'm glad that people, at least here in this little group, I'm glad that people are now beginning to realize what the truth is. We are beginning to realize that we have been lied to all these decades. And I think this is going to only intensify and more and more people will start knowing the truth in the coming years. It needs to happen. It will happen. And only then, with the force of all these people, will India be able to gain its true freedom from the colonial mindset. Okay, let's take... One more question. Let's take one more question. Let's take a couple of more questions. Adarsh asks, since supersymmetric particles are not found, what do you think is next after the standard model in particle physics? What's the future of particle physics? Okay, that's a very good question. So the context is this. uh, there is this theory called supersymmetry in which uh, it, it, it says, it predicts that you will find supersymmetric particles, partners of the standard model particles. So the standard model particles are the, uh, are the 16, 17 particles, right? The uh, bosons, the fermions, uh, the, the hadrons, the force carriers, and so on and so forth. And you will have supersymmetric particles, uh, partners of these particles. And it was hoped that the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, it would be able to provide evidence of the existence of these particles, but no such evidence has been forthcoming. And therefore, the theory of supersymmetry is more or less dead. And therefore, it is a big failure. The only new particle that the LHC was able to discover was the last piece of the puzzle, the missing boson, which is the Higgs boson. That's the only particle that was discovered. Nothing else has come out of the experiments that have been done for years in the LHC. No new particle has been discovered. No supersymmetric particle. And therefore, the the theory of supersymmetry is, I would say, in my opinion, it is dead. 
dead and cold, right? So what is next after the standard model in the partic- in particle physics? What is next is dark matter. This enormous mystery of dark matter. So there are two enormous mysteries in cosmology. One is dark matter, the other is dark energy. Dark matter is about 20-21% approximately roughly of the matter of the universe. Dark energy is more than 70% of the mat- of the mass energy composition of the universe. So dark energy could perhaps be a force of some kind. It is clearly most likely not a kind, uh, some kind of particle. So it is a, an even deeper mystery. But dark matter is most likely some kind of particle that interacts only gravitationally. So that is the next frontier in particle physics to try and uncover the true nature of dark matter. What sort of particle is it? Is it a single particle? Is it a class of particles? Is it a family of particles? Does it have something to do with primordial black holes, microscopic black holes? Is it something else entirely? We still don't know. And that is the next frontier in particle physics. We will have to understand gravity, the force of gravity, more deeply than we currently do to be able to crack this mystery. The 21st century is supposed to be, was was supposed to be the century of gravitation. We are almost more than one-fifth of the way into the century. We have made no progress whatsoever. So things are going to have to change in physics. The current environment of groupthink and this entire string theory mafia that has taken over theoretical physics, it will need to be overcome and overthrown if we are to make progress in in theoretical physics, in particle physics, and if we are going to move, move forward in our understanding of the universe. So good question. Okay, let's take one more question. <laughs> Why do the Turkish people look European? Because their ancestors were Europeans. At least their female ancestors were Europeans, if you get my drift. Okay, so the, the Turkish people, their ancestry, more than 90% of the genetics would be the local genetics of the Mediterranean region, the Anatolian region. Their ancestors were the Greeks, the Armenians, and so on. There is very little Turkic ancestry in these people. But the culture is the old Turkic culture. The language is a Turkic language. And I am sure that their patrilineal lineages are Turkic lineages. So that's why they look European, because they are European (laughs) by blood, by ethnicity. All right. What shall we do now? Shall we shall we take some more questions? One more question, perhaps. Dungar Singh Johan says, why do we add ism in Hinduism? In what way does this dete- deteriorate our culture? First of all, this term Hindu is an exonym. It is a name that is given by foreigners to, to India and India's culture. The Parsis, the Persians, who are our brothers actually, who are the descendants of our ancestors, the Parsis, they called the Sindhu River the Hindu River because in, in, the, Pers- in the old Persian language, the S was replaced by H. So Sapta Sindhu was called Hapta Hindu and so on and so forth. Saraswati was called Haravati. So they called the Sindhu River, the Indus River, Sindhu. They called it Hindu. And later this entire region was called Hindu or Hind. And then this name was given to the people of India. And when the Turks invaded India and conquered India, parts of India, they called the local people Hindus because of the Iranian name for this region, 
and then the british also started doing that and then later on even the indians started calling themselves hindus and then this foreignism was placed at the end of hindu so it became hinduism so these are all foreign concepts foreign terms which we have internalized and absorbed it is called mental colonization so the correct word for our culture is dharma it is not hindu it is not hinduism or any of that nonsense it is simply dharma if we understand that then we will be able to decolonize so yes this term hinduism and this this adjective hindu it actually denigrates and in a way like you say deteriorates our culture it it perpetuates the mental colonization that is prevalent throughout our country even i use the term hinduism all the time so i am equally guilty you know in in uh, continuing this that's just the way it is right now so good question okay okay i think uh, it's 1 minutes 40 1 hour 45 minutes i'm going to stop it here so great great session people thank you very much for your questions we will continue this in the next session the next session is not tomorrow it is on monday tomorrow is a special day many of you have requested me not to do it tomorrow because there's a cricket match india pakistan so enjoy the match tomorrow we will have the session on monday it's going to be a video chat session so i will see you then until that time take care thank you and i will see you soon all right bye